Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Chuck. Well, it is great to be here, and I must have missed the offering. I was uh, watching the video. Did did you do the offering? Well, I wanted to give something to it, so let me give a... (laughs) I was watching the video. Um, Wasn't that tremendous? My, oh, my. Talk about the Lord moving amongst the youth. Wow. Well, I want you to know how much I love your pastor and his wife, Kim, and the family here at Fellowship Church. You all are so special to us. Um, my wife and I uh, have moved to Florida. We're just about an hour down the road. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here all the time. So you have the best right here at Fellowship Church. I have some books in the uh, back, and I wanted to mention a few of them. One of them is, Who is the King in America?, And uh, you are, I didn't know if you knew that, uh, the word citizen means co-king, right? So in America, you get to be in charge of your life, and together we're in charge of the country. And um, anyway, I'll tell a little bit more about that. And then uh, a set of DVDs called Miracles in American History. I'm going to share some of those stories. And then uh, a book called uh, America's God and Country, Encyclopedia Quotations. This was my first book. And it sold a half million copies, and it sort of helped launch my career about 25 years ago. But um, I wanted to give these to see some young people over here. So here, you want a book? Here, and uh, you can get one for your brother. And uh, there, and there's another young person there. Do you want a DVD? Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, I was talking to some uh, people in the lobby where the food is. That is a great idea. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I don't know if, if you've been to the, the coffee and the, the donuts and all everything. I bet that was Kim's idea. That is really good. Anyway, I was visiting out there, and um, someone was talking, and I shared the concept. It's called deconstruction. Deconstruction. It's a communist tactic where you separate a people from their past, get them into a neutral where they do not remember where they came from, and then you brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. It's a sales technique. So if I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is say negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're still using that old toothpaste. Don't you know it'll eat the enamel off your teeth and dry out your gums? Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I have you into a neutral. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there nowadays? Then I can give you my pitch for this brand new tartar control, enamel strengthening stuff. So they do that in the classrooms. They go into the classrooms and they tell the students negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians, sold people into slavery. They were chauvinists. And, ooh, the students are repulsed by them. Now you got the students into a neutral. They're open-minded. What are all the belief systems out there nowadays? Then you give them your pitch for socialism or LGBT or Islam. Europe went through this. It went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, and Jewish neighborhoods into a secular Europe with the French Revolution and Napoleon spreading all this French secularism around and there's no God, anything goes, free sex, LGBT, and now it's turning into an Islamic Europe with Muhammad being the number one name for newborns and no-go zones. Right, So we see this trend from Bibles in the schools to condoms in the schools. Now it's hijabs in the schools, right? Anyway... So the attitude is we've gone from teaching about our Christian godly heritage to ignoring it, and now they're teaching in the schools that Christians are the problem in the world, that America is bad, that all the founding fathers, and these kids are coming out of, out of school saying, man, our country's bad. Where are they? 
And so what I do is share that our founding fathers, for all their human failings, they gave us a form of government where we get to be in charge of our life. You see, the most common form of, the most common form of government in world history is what? It's a king. Now, they go by different names. Nimrod, Tower of Babel, Pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, Psalters, 5,000 years of Chinese emperors, uh, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, King of Spain, France, and Austria, King of England. The, the most common form of government is a king. Power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. And uh, it co- goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain killing Abel with a stone. Only the weapons change. Use bronze weapons and iron weapons and phalanx spears that the Greeks had and scimitar swords and, you know, stirrups riding horses and gunpowder. And, you know, the, the, the weapon changes, but it's that same fallen nature, Cain, kill, and Abel. And it's just magnified through technology. And uh, wherever there's a king, it's a hierarchical system. If you are friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. Or you're a slave. And so this is the norm for world history. Now, whenever you have a king, he wants to control your life. And so you got Augustus Caesar wanting to have a global census. He wants to track everyone that's under his thumb. Right? So like the NSA, you know, the government wants to track you. Like China, they have the social credit system now where they, they track every single citizen. And the, the government wants, And the government wants to insert itself between you and God. Either say there is no God or they're going to dictate what you're going to believe about God. All the way back to Nebuchadnezzar saying, when I blow my trumpets, you bow to my statue. I don't care if you have a warm feeling in your heart for my statue. (laughs) You're going to bow to it or I'm going to throw you in the fire. And the king of England, you got to believe what I tell you to believe or I'm going to burn you at the stake like he did to William Tyndall. So kings want to tell you what to believe. They want to say, okay, from now on, there's no more male and female. And you have to immediately throw away all your beliefs and embrace it. Otherwise, we're going to send our Department of Justice down and we're going to come after you. The government wants to determine your beliefs. You know the word ecclesia means called out. It's the word for church, but in Greek, ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling. It's a calling out of the group. Calling out. So the, the strongest desire of humans is to be accepted by a group. Little kids want to be, you know, wear their tennis shoes because I want to be accepted by the group. Everybody wants to be accepted by the group. Jesus says, I want you to come out from the group and stand alone, and it's just you and me. So the Judeo-Christian faith is an individual faith. God is jealous for an individual relationship with you. What does that have to do with America? (laughs) Well, the king of England, the most powerful king on the planet, he set up all the judges. He said, America's founder decided to break away and flip it and make the people the king. So it's a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top-down rule by the government, it's bottom-up rule by the people. So who's the king in America? You are. The word citizen means co-king. So you get to decide what you're going to do with your life. You get to decide where you want to live, what career you want to pursue, who you want to marry. Right? Did you know that um, Beethoven was given piano lessons to the daughter of a Czech duke? And they fell in love. But she was not allowed to marry him because he was in a lower class. You're the daughter of a duke. He's a piano teacher. (laughs) No way. Right? Uh, Queen Isabella couldn't even decide who she was going to marry. Right? She's a young girl and her uncle's the king and he betrothes her to some old guy. And luckily he died. And he betrothes her to another guy. Luckily he died. She finally got the the right of first refusal. But here she's going to be the queen. She can't even decide who she's going to marry. And... um, 
And then if you were a Christian living in Cairo, Egypt, you would be called garbage people. You could never hold a job higher than a Muslim. Or if you're in India and they have a caste system, and if you're in the lowest caste called the untouchables or Dalits, you have to clean the sewers. And no matter how good a job you do, you can never graduate in castes and get to become a Brahmin. They're the top. They're near divinity in the Hindu belief system. Right? The structure of society does not allow you to choose what you want to do with your life. In America, you can choose what you want to do, who you want to marry, where you want to live, what church you want to go to. You're in charge of these decisions, you and God. That's the freedom America's founders gave us. They broke away from a king who dictates everything, and they gave us this form of government where we get to be in charge of our life, and then together we're in charge of the country. So when we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, we're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. That's what a republic is. A republic is where the people are king ruling through representatives. Is this making sense? Right. A democracy is where the people are king ruling directly. You, ha you have to personally be there. And so it only worked on a small level like a city-state. Republic is you, where you take care of your family and your farm, and you send someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So republics could grow bigger because you, you could take care of your family and farm, and they're doing it. So, but you're still the king. So, again, a republic is the people are king ruling through representatives. So we pledge allegiance to the flag. We're pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. So when someone protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest the system where I participate in ruling myself. It's like, okay, dude, somebody else will dictate what's going to happen in your life. America's founders broke away from the king, and they gave us the freedom to decide. So uh, I put together a, a book with my wife. It's called Miracles in American History. And there are stories from our country's past where there's a crisis, they pray, and things turn around. And um, I, uh, I was going to pick up with, this, with the other uh, ones, but uh, I'll tell you this Betsy Ross story real quick. Um, Betsy Ross was a Quaker, and the Quakers were the number one anti-slavery movement in America. Uh, they started the first abolitionist society, and they went on record in their early 1700s that their denomination would officially be against slavery. Every time the government met, the Quakers would show up and say, we've got to get rid of slavery. We've got to get rid of slavery. They did it so much that it was called the Quaker Memorial. And so you read the records of these you know, government meetings. We talked about this. We talked about this. Oh, yeah, and the Quaker Memorial. And you're like, what's that what, Quaker Memorial? Oh, the Quakers always bring up every single time, get rid of slavery. So Betsy Ross was anti-slavery. So it's sort of silly that somebody would want to protest her. Right? She's like anti-slavery. Why would you protest somebody that's against slavery? Anyway, Betsy Ross is married to John Ross. Now, it's a mixed marriage. He's Episcopalian. We think of mixed marriage as different race. Back then it was different religions. So no, no minister would say their wedding, so they have to elope. <laughs> they got some government guy to say their wedding. Uh, his name is William Franklin. He's the son of Ben Franklin. And um, anyway, uh, so, she, so John Ross is the, is the nephew of George Ross, who's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And um, anyway, so John Ross is killed when, uh, by the way, they go to church in Christ Church, and their pew is right next to George Washington's pew and Ben Franklin's pew. So during the Revolution, uh, John Ross dies when a munitions depot he's guarding blows up. And so shortly after this is when uh, Washington and George Ross ask her to sew a flag. She sews lots of flags, one for the Pennsylvania Navy, and it looks a whole lot like the Betsy Ross flag. And, but there's other ladies sewing flags, but she's the one we remember the most. 
And um, anyway, then she marries Joseph Ashburn, who is a sea captain. And at this time, the British occupy Philadelphia. And they come to her house and they quarter in their home. What does that mean, quartering? That means that a whole bunch of these soldiers come to your house and they sleep in your beds and eat your food and you have to just find a place to sleep in the attic or the barn, right? Quartering, and that's why the founders didn't like that. Well, Joseph Ashburn is a sea captain, so he sails to the Bahamas, the West Indies, looking for Dutch ships with supplies to smuggle into America. And Joseph Ashburn is caught and he is put in the old mill prison in the West Indies where he dies. Well, one of his cellmates is named John Claypool. He finally gets out, and he goes all the way to Betsy to tell him about her husband dying. And John Claypool falls in love with Betsy, and they get married and have five kids. (laughs) So Betsy Ross is married to three American patriots, and so just a real patriotic woman, uh, as well as being against slavery. So... Uh, there's a three-cent stamp named after her, and a, they had a bunch of bakery companies named after her. And um, another young woman that is a hero, Sybil Ludington. So we all know Paul Revere's ride. Well, here's a woman, and she is um, 16 years old, and her dad is commanding a bunch of soldiers. But the British are coming, and he doesn't know about it. So she takes off, and she rides all night long, April 26th of 1777, and to warn her dad and to wake up all the soldiers along the way and get them to come and join her dad. And so um, uh, Sybil Ludington here ended her night ride, April 26th, 1777, to summon militia of Colonel Ludington's regiment to repel British raid at Danbury, Connecticut. So a courageous woman. Why? Because if she would have gotten caught, she would have been hung. If you're a soldier and you're wearing a uniform and you're caught, you have certain prisoner of war rights. But if you're a civilian engaged in warfare, you're hung. It's interesting. I put together a bunch of stories. One of them was uh, a woman that was in New York, Long Island, and the Americans were on the other side of the harbor. Ben Talmadge was the American intelligence officer. And they wanted to get messages back and forth. You know how they did it? They told her to hang her laundry on the clothesline in certain predetermined configurations that would say different things that the British are doing. So the blue clothes here, white clothes here, black clothes here. So she she would be sort of like sending Morse code signals by the way she was hanging her laundry. How do you like that? Uh, There was a Quaker lady and the uh, British quartered in her house and there's the stairway that goes upstairs and there's a little closet down at the bottom you know where the stairs are she would go in there listen through the wall and get the british plans and write them down on pieces of paper and then wad them up into little balls and sew them cover them with cloth and make them buttons for her son's vest and then sent her son out to go meet with George Washington's men. They'd snip the buttons off, take him to Washington, he'd unfold it, and then he'd know what the British were planning. So a lot of courageous women. One of them was a young girl. Her dad was the commissary for the uh, Deborah Champion, uh, for the American Army with the, with the supplies. And she, the, they needed to get messages to him in Washington back and forth. 
And so she, she's 20 years old, she dresses as an old lady with the big bonnet, and she hides the papers in the, you know, the, all the petticoat stuff that she has, and is able to go past all the British checkpoints. And uh, just a lot of courageous women during the Revolutionary War. And then there's Molly Pitcher. You know her story. Uh, now, the women would follow the troops. They were called camp followers. Why? Because there was no logistics. There were no gov- ambulances. There were no medical tents. There was nothing to take care of the soldiers. It was just the guy off the farm leaving and joining the troops. The women would come behind and they would be the ones to scavenge for food, cook the food, mend the clothes, sew the clothes, and take care of the wounded. <laughs> they were all of that legit. And it even went through the Civil War. Remember Clara Barton's a school teacher? And here she is following the troops around and and uh, starts the you know American Red Cross after that, but um, so on the battlefield, uh, the women would bring pitchers of water to the soldiers from one dugout to the other to the other. And uh, I mentioned before, um, a friend of mine, George Hutchings, has a Purple Heart from Vietnam, and he was in a bunch of combat. And he says your mouth never gets so dry than when you're in combat. Right. Not only are you open to the sky and it's hot and it's everything, but it, you just drain all the. And, and he said, um, uh, anyway, how, how dry your mouth gets. So, so here's Molly Pitcher going from dugout to dugout, giving water, and her husband is in charge of a cannon, and he is um, wounded, and then he has heat stroke, and they drag him off, and she puts down her pitcher and she goes and and takes care of the cannon. She's loading the cannon, putting the. First in the cannonball, then the cartridge, you know, and then the swads, and then you have to shoot it. And afterwards, you swab it with water and uh, because you have to cool it because otherwise it'll overheat and melt and be useless. And so here she, she fights the whole rest of the battle taking care of this cannon. And George Washington hears about it and, and commends her. And uh, one of the soldiers that was there said that he observed uh, a lady was taking care of the artillery piece, and she put one foot way in front of the other to pick up a cannonball, and a British cannonball went between her legs and tore off the bottom of her petticoat. And um, she simply stood up and said, that could have been worse, and she got back to reloading the cannon. <laughs> How do you like that? And uh, so um, just courageous woman, and um, there is uh, Molly Pitcher. See there where she's got that ramrod. And uh, Abigail Adams gives a great quote. She was in Boston while John Adams is helping to write the Declaration of Independence. And Abigail says, I dare not express to you at 300 miles distance how ardently I long for your return. And whether the end will be tragical, heaven only knows. You cannot be, nor do I wish to see you, an inactive spectator. But if the sword be drawn, I bid adieu to all domestic felicity and look forward to that country where there are neither wars nor rumors of wars, in firm belief that through the mercy of its king we shall both rejoice there together. Your most affectionate Abigail. That song we wrote in the sweet by and by, she's like, you know, if we don't have any more joy in this life when we die, I'll see you up there on the shores. And um, anyway, again, we're breaking away from the most powerful king on the planet, the king of England. There's 6,000 years of recorded human history. Records go back to Sumerian cuneiform and Egyptian hieroglyphics around 5,000 years ago. And uh, Roosevelt said, 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. He's using the number 6,000. 
Uh, Richard Overy wrote the Times Complete History of the World. He said, no date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago. So again, we're seeing these, these numbers of that's when writing was invented. Daniel Webster wrote, miracles do not cluster. What has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. So the most common form of government is a king. All these people that are oppressed by kings say, man, if only we could get a bunch of people and we could live together without a king. And oh, and here, we've had it. And if we blow it, they're all going to say it'll never work. And so you're back to a, a world globalist, antichrist dictator, right? Here's James Wilson said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. Right? So in all these other countries, you have a terrible king and you finally get rid of him and you have another king and he's good for a while, but then he has a son who wants to stay in power and he's going to rig everything. And before you know it, he's a corrupt guy. And so you just keep going from one corrupt, and it just, you know, you get rid of one communist dictator, you get another. You get rid of one, you know, gang leader or, you know, banana republic dictator in, in you know, Latin and South America, you get another. We get rid of one gang leader, you get another. But here in America, we, we flipped it. We get rid of a king, and we make the people the king. And um, anyway... So from the beginning of recorded history, you've got Nimrod, Tower of Babel, and then you have Pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Till the Hun and Muslim sultans and King of Spain, France, and Austria. And uh, so power wants to concentrate. And uh, it's, the problem is it's in each of our own human nature. So you put some babies in a playpen, one takes the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one is the bully hogging the ball. You put some natives in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief. You put some people in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. right? And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. It's a hierarchical system. So if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you're less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason or you're a slave. So it's this pyramid structure to society and it repeats itself all around the world. Right? If you're close to the Chinese emperor, if you're close to the Indian Maharaja, if you're close to the African chieftain, if you're close to the, you know, Atahualpa and Inca Peru, and close to the king of Spain, king of France, king, it's all based on your being part of a group. And if you are not part of that group, you don't have any rights. And so most of world history, there's no concept of equality. There's no concept of fairness. I was talking to a bunch of students yesterday in Dallas, Texas. Uh, it was um, uh, a group where they take Jewish students around the country to meet with, um, uh, you know, see all kinds of historic places and then meet with different speakers. And uh, the, uh, it was quite, quite unusual. Uh, the head of the group said, um, yeah, we were just in, in like Oklahoma and they were wanting to put up a statue of Satan. And they said that we should have the freedom of religion and, and so forth. And so, so I called the guy and had him address our group. Like, okay, you know. And, and so we want to hear your side now because we want the kids to hear all the different sides and everything. And it's like, okay, uh, as long as the government's doing actions, the government has thoughts that precede those actions. That collection of thoughts is your belief system. It's your religion. So as long as the government's doing actions, the government has a religion. There was some draft dodgers in 1970, and they wanted to claim religious conscientious objector status as atheists. So the government says, okay, atheism is a religion. You get to claim religious conscientious objector. 
So, so the, the federal government says atheists, we need to use a broad definition of religion that, that includes theistic and non-theistic beliefs. So a non-theistic belief is a religion. It's a collection of beliefs. So there will always be a religion in government. The question is whose? And these kids are like, hmm, yeah. And so do, you, do all belief systems value human life equally? Well, no, in the, the Hindu belief system, if you're down there in the lowest caste, you're not equal to the Brahmin. Uh, in the, the Islamic belief system, if you're an infidel, you're not equal to a believing Muslim. If you're a woman, you're not equal to a man. Even Muhammad said that a woman's mind is deficient, so it takes two women to testify in court against one man. <laughs> There's not equality in that belief system. Um, in the Bible, it says that man and woman are made in the image of God, and they are equal. And this God says there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, you treat them exactly the same. There's no class system. So if you were to choose which belief system you would want the government to have, wouldn't you want one that bases your worth not on your relationship with some important person? Not on your race, not on your class, not on your skin color, not on, you know, how well you can contribute to society. Right? So some say, well, if you can contribute to society, you're worth more. If you're a drain on society, you're worth less. Well, wouldn't you like a belief system that says your worth is not dependent on how much you can contribute or not? or what race you're a part of, or who you're friends with or not. Your worth is based on you being created in the image of God. And that since you get your rights from God, you get your rights from a source higher than the government. And therefore, the government doesn't give you rights. The government can't take them away. I was asking the kids. I said, well, now, if there's no God, where do your rights come from? Oh, the government. Well, what the government giveth, the government can taketh awayeth. <laughs> Right? And so you want to be able to put your foot down and say, I have rights from a source higher than the government. That's what our founder says. We got rights from a creator. Anyway, did you get that? Did that make sense? Anyway. Um, so we got this uh, Europe. They have divine right of kings. Where the creator gives the power to the king. He dispenses it to the people. In other words, the king didn't believe everyone was created equal. He believed he was created a little extra special. And all the rights come to him and he dispenses it. Here's the king of France, Louis XIV. He said, I am the state. Another place, he says, it is legal because I wish it. Well, that's easy. The law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a really powerful army to make you obey. Here's King James. He said, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth. Sit upon God's throne. And so this was the norm for world history, whether it was a Muslim sultan or whatever. And so it took centuries for America's founders to break away from a king and flip it and make you the king. And um, so this is the British Empire. So the king of England was like a one-world government guy. He was like a globalist with him at the top. <laughs> and the sun never set on the British Empire. And America's founders decided we didn't like this one-world government globalist telling us what to do. And uh, there's a bunch of battles, and uh, I went through the Battle of Brooklyn Heights uh, in the first service, but I'm going to skip past that to get to another battle. And um, I will stop at this declaration. So here's the Declaration of Independence. They run it out to George Washington. Did you know the Declaration of Independence mentions God four times? Laws of nature and of nature's God. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. You know that appealing to the supreme judge of the world? 
that was an invitation for God to be a part of our experiment. And so you look at ancient Israel. They come into the promised land. They have a covenant with God. Then they are blessed. Then they begin to backslide and worship the gods of the other countries. Then God sends prophets to tell Israel to repent. And they don't. And then God sends judgment. And they get overrun by the Amalekites, Hittites, Moabites, Termites, Mosquitoites, Parasites, Trilobites, Millerites, I don't know. All the ites. And then they repent and he sends a deliverer. Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah. They're delivered and then they renew their covenant with God. And then they are blessed. And then they begin to backslide. And then he sends prophets. They don't repent. And then he sends judgment. They repent. He sends a deliverer. They're delivered. They renew their covenant with God again. Thirteen times in the book of Judges, right? And it's sort of like you and I. We make a covenant with God. right? We get saved. And then we're blessed. And then... A lot of times we begin to backslide, don't go to church as much, don't read the Bible as much, and, and then we have prophets telling us to repent. What's that? Well, maybe that's something the pastor says, or maybe a Christian song, and it tugs on your heart and says, come back, and what does human nature say? Yeah, but later. And then what happens? The bottom falls out, you have some crisis in your life, and what do you do? You repent, <laughs> you cry out to God, and God somehow in His mercy delivers you, and then you renew your covenant with Now. We're saved because of grace, but our fellowship with God, we need to sort of keep that, work on keeping that close. But um, what is America? What is a nation but a bunch of individuals? And so America made a covenant with God right there, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. We, we invited him to be a part of this. And then America was blessed. Got Eli Whitney inventing the cotton gin, Robert Fulton inventing the steamboat, Samuel Morris inventing the telegraph. We're just blowing and going. And then we begin to re- backslide. Through slavery. One group prospered off the sweat and blood of another group. There was a party in southern America that actually was in favor of slavery. There were the Democrats. And then north you had the Whigs, and then the Know-Nothings, and a bunch of other parties. And finally, in 1856, you had a new party that was an anti-slavery party that started to call the Republican Party. And, and so uh, you had Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican president. So we, had, we made a covenant with God. We were blessed. We backslid through slavery. We have prophets telling us to repent. We didn't repent. Judgment came. Half a million people died in the Civil War. Then we repented. Lincoln had a day of fasting and prayer. April 30th, 1863. We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand that preserved us in peace. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too proud to pray to the God that made us. Anyway, we repent. And then we are delivered, and then we renew our covenant. How? Well, Lincoln made the National Day of Thanksgiving an annual event. And he put in God we trust on our coins. But we've gone around that cycle to major and minor degrees. But we're somewhere on it today. God is wanting to get our attention. So, we go from the divine right of kings to bypassing the king, and the creator gives the rights to each person. So our founding fathers, for all their human failings, they gave us a form of government where we get rights directly from God, not through some bureaucrat or whatever. So uh, Lincoln, Lincoln, Washington, Washington places chaplains in every regiment. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. And um, anyway, there's the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, where a British loyalist showed the British where to land far away from the Americans, and then they marched all night long and attacked the Americans from behind. On August 27th of 1776, 3,000 Americans die. Only 300 British, totally lopsided. 
It's the entire American army. There's no second string. If it's over here, it's over. And so as these young Maryland regiment soldiers are charging into the British ranks, they all die, but they buy time for the rest of the army. And Washington's looking at them from a distance. He says, good God, what brave fellows I have lost this day. And um, so that night, Washington's trapped up against the water. And so he's probably thinking next day he'd be hung and America will be another British colony like Kenya or India and or Uganda or something. But instead, Washington gets every boat he can find and ferries him across the East River to Manhattan Island. The sea's like glass and uh, is able to do it real quiet. And he gets about half his army across when the sun starts to come up. Now he's in real problem because he's only moved half of the army. And uh, his chief of intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes, As the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river. And it seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect this providential occurrence peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well and so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance we tarried until the sun had risen but the fog remained as dense as ever so the fog Washington continues to move his troops his soldiers his horses his supplies he's on the last boat that leaves the fog lifts the British charge and no one's there it was the last chance the British had to capture the entire American army all at one time And uh, Washington later writes, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in the course of the war that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. But it will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases. So, Battle of Saratoga, what's that? The British land their troops in Canada. And they're going to march down from Canada to Albany, New York. And then they... Now, after this Battle of Brooklyn Heights, the British did take New York City. So they're going to march up from New York City up the Hudson River to Albany. So they're going to cut sort of the pincer movement. And what will happen is it will split America in half. Because all the New England colonies will be on one side and the Middle Southern colonies on the other. And so uh, the British land, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, he's a British general, 6,000 troops are marching down from Canada, they recapture Fort Ticonderoga, they're headed down the Hudson River Valley, and Burgoyne meets with the Indians and stirs them up to attack the Americans. This is how the British took over India, right? They landed in Bengal, and then they would go to one kingdom and give them guns, go to another kingdom, give them guns, stir up ancient animosities between them, and when they beat each other up, the British would come in and conquer both. They did it again and again and again until they took over all of India. And so the way you take over a country is you send in some people to stir up those with grievances until they riot and cause disruption and violence. And then the people are willing to surrender to anybody that will come in and restore order. So the British would come into these Indians and stir them up to riot. So these Indians would go in front of the British army and terrorize. And... uh, uh, the British offered him you know, money for scalps. And now the, there's a um, loyalist settlement in New York. So these are people that live in America. They're loyal to Britain. And one of them is David Jones, way out in the frontier, little woods, you know, in the forest. And his fiancée is Jane McRae. And so he tells her that he is going to join this British General Burgoyne 
and drive out the rebel Americans and then come back and they'll get married. And so he kisses her goodbye and he leaves. Well, the Indians are getting close to the settlement and David Jones is probably anticipating seeing his fiancée again. Well, uh, one night the Indians come in from their raiding and they have their scalps and they do their scalp dance. Right? You know, they're hooping and hollering with all the scalps that they got from their raids. And uh, he notices one of the scalps is this really long, pretty hair. Sure enough, they scalped his fiance, Jane McRae. I mean, the Indians can't tell who's an American and who's a loyalist to Britain. We all sort of look the same to them. And so David Jones and the other men go to this General Burgoyne and say, What were you thinking? And so he goes and meets with the Indians, and he tells them to tone it down. Now, the Indians don't know tone it down. They know, they know on and off. They're at war. They're at peace. They don't know any limited warfare. You know, like we tell our soldiers, don't shoot at them when they're crossing the street. Wait till they set up and shoot at you, and then you can shoot at them. The Indians, they don't know limited warfare. They're just either total warfare or they're at peace. And so they get offended and leave. And now you have an entire British army in the middle of the New York forest, and they do, do not know where they're at. The Indians had been their eyes and ears, their reconnaissance. And so the Americans are able to surround the British and force them to surrender. It's called the Battle of Saratoga. 6,000 British troops surrender. That would be a big deal today if 6,000 of any country's troops surrendered. It ricochets around the world, and so Ben Franklin is over in France, and he goes into the king's office, and uh, the king of France was not in any hurry to get in another war with the king of England because the previous war, the French and Indian War, France lost the Louisiana Territory to the British, right, all the way to the Mississippi. So, um, but now 6,000 are captured, so France decides to jump in the war. And uh, the, ha- the painting of the British General Burgoyne surrendering at Saratoga hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. General Washington says, I most devoutly congratulate my country and every well-wisher to the cause on this signal stroke of providence. And then, our country's so excited, they have the first National Day of Thanksgiving. So this is the, after the Declaration. This is the first ever National Declaration of Thanksgiving. It says, with one heart and one voice, join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot them out. And under the providence of Almighty God, secure for these United States the greatest of all human blessings, independence and peace. But I just think it's interesting. It says right in there, through the merits of Jesus Christ. This is the first national day of Thanksgiving mentioned through the merits of Jesus Christ. So Washington then gives an order to the distinguished character of patriot. It should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. And then some Indians bring their youth to Washington to train in American schools. He says, you do well to wish to learn our arts and way of life and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. Um, Then one of the heroes of the Battle of Saratoga was Benedict Arnold. He led a flanking charge at the Battle of Saratoga, and he was wounded in the leg, but he was like the hero. So he was more popular than George Washington. And now he's wounded, he's recovering, he's made the governor of Philadelphia, military governor. While he's there, he meets a daughter of a loyalist, Peggy Shippen. And so uh, they fall in love, they get married. And he gets passed over for some promotions. 
and she begins to nag him. If you were in the British Army, they would appreciate you. And so now he's put in charge of West Point. And Washington is, still believes in Washington had a blind spot. He's like, Benedict Arnold, he's like the ultimate patriot. He's like, you know. And so at West Point, Benedict Arnold decides to surrender it to the British on the very day George Washington was coming to inspect it. Wow. And so he meets with a British spy named John Andre. And uh, again, West Point's on the Hudson River, which cuts New York in half. And uh, there's West Point today. Well, the spy, John Andre, dresses as a civilian, and he's sneaking back to the British lines. He almost crosses the last bridge when some soldiers come out of the woods dressed, dressed as Hessians. They are the German mercenaries that help the British. And if ben, this um, John Andre, the spy, if he would have kept his mouth shut, he could have made it across the bridge. But he blurts out, it's finally good to see some soldiers on our side. And these soldiers say, well, what do you mean our side? Well, you're Hessians, you're with the Germans, you're with the English. He goes, no, 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 we're Americans dressed as Hessians to try to find people that aren't really loyal. And he's like, you know, I knew that. You can't, you don't know who you can trust now. He tries to talk his way out of it. And they go, yeah, we're, we're going to search you anyway. They search him once, search him twice. They're about to let him go until they make him take off his boot. And sagging in the sock of his boot is the map of West Point. Like with a big arrow, you know, attack here. <laughs> He's going to give it to the first. And so here's another picture of him with his boot off, and they're looking at this map. And so they arrest John Andre. Word gets back to West Point, and Benedict Arnold flees on a British ship called the Vulture. And the next day, word of the treason comes to light, and the American general Nathaniel Green says, Treason of the blackest eye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, was about to give the American cause a deadly wound, if not fatal, stab. Happily, the treason had been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances, which led to its discovery, affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. This is like finding out a bunch of the corrupt stuff that has been going on behind the scenes. Uh, like in, with the Department of Justice and, and the FBI and everything. It's like, oh, there's a bunch of corrupt stuff that was about to betray America. It's coming to light now. And um, Ezra Stiles was the president of Yale. And he says, a providential miracle at the last minute detected this treacherous scheme of traitor Benedict Arnold, which would have delivered the American army, including George Washington himself, into the hands of the enemy. And so the Continental Congress is so happy, they do what? They have another day of Thanksgiving. The late remarkable interposition of his watchful providence in the rescuing the person of our commander-in-chief and army from imminent danger at the moment when treason was ripened for execution. It is therefore recommended a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to confess our unworthiness and to offer fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. I just think it's interesting. Here they are thanking God that West Point wasn't captured, which was our biggest military base in America, thanking God that George Washington wasn't captured, and we want to thank God that the knowledge of Christianity spreads over all the earth. I think they were Christian. Right? And um, one last battle, Battle of Cowpens. You have some cows, you put them in a pen, call it Cowpens. It's in South Carolina. Uh, the British have a Colonel Tarleton, nicknamed the Butcher. If you saw the movie The Patriot that Mel Gibson did, there's this Colonel Tarleton the Butcher. Why? 
because of a couple battles earlier, Tarleton was fighting the Americans, and the Americans are surrendering. 300 Americans surrender. And this Colonel Tarleton sends his men in on horseback with their sabers, and they hack him to death. So he's nicknamed the Butcher. So the Battle of Cowpens, Colonel Tarleton is chasing the Americans, led by Daniel Morgan. Daniel Morgan says, I can't outrun him. We're going to fight. But he picks where? So he picks it in front of a river. Now, you never fight a battle in front of a river. Because if you're losing, it makes it really hard to run away. And so it looks foolish. And Daniel Morgan has two groups of Americans. One is the militia, straight off the farm. And they're known for shooting a couple times and running away. And behind them are the Continental soldiers. And they will not run away. So Colonel Tarleton sees these militia lined up in front of a river. And he says, what fools? He says, let's go in there and hack them to death. Tells his men to take out their swords. They charge. The militia fire once, boom, fire twice, boom. Then they run away. And the, if you see on the, the map there, the American Continental soldiers act like they're going to run away. And then they turn on their heels, level their rifles. And at point blank range, they shoot, boom, and they kill 100 British dragoons. And the ones that ran away, they simply circle around and come around the other side and attack the British from the side. And 800 of the British dragoons uh, throw down their weapons and surrender. When word gets to Lord Cornwallis, the British commander, he was leaning on his sword. He leaned so hard, the sword snapped in half. So he takes off after the Americans. And they chase him, and they come to the Catawba River. The Americans cross... Before the British can cross, there's a flash flood, and the river rises over its banks. The British finally get across, and now they're chasing the Americans to the Yadkin River. And the Americans cross, the British show up. Before the British can cross, another flash flood, and they're delayed. The British finally cross, and they're chasing the Americans to the Dan River. And the Americans get across, the British show up, another flash flood. And here's the historical marker. Boyd's and Irwin's ferries to the west were used by Nathaniel Green in his passage of Dan River in mid-February 1781 while Cornwallis was in close pursuit. So the British give up the chase. And the British commander, Henry Clinton, writes, Here the royal army was again stopped by a sudden rise of the waters, which had only just fallen almost miraculously to let the enemy over, who could not else have eluded Lord Cornwallis's grasp so close was he upon their rear. So now you have a British army, and along the way, Cornwallis had left behind his supplies so he could go faster. So now he doesn't have any supplies. He's, he is ordered to wait at Yorktown, and uh, that's when the French finally show up and block the British rescue ships, and Cornwallis has to surrender. And so this is uh, 1781. And... Uh, Anyway, George Washington says this, um, It will not be believed that such a force as Great Britain has employed for eight years in this country could be baffled in their plan of subjugating it by numbers infinitely less composed of men, oftentimes half-starved, always in rags, without pay, and ex experiencing at times every species of distress which human nature is capable of undergoing. The singular interposition of providence in our feeble condition were such as could scarcely escape the attention of the most unobserving. And then he ends by saying it was a little short of a standing miracle. So here's George Washington saying, it was a miracle. 
Ben Franklin at the Constitutional Convention says, During our contest with Great Britain, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, graciously answered. All of us who are engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. It was a miracle that America came into being. If it wasn't for a 3,000-mile ocean, if it wasn't for France jumping in the war, which turned it from a little local Britain putting down a squabble in some colonies to now, it's a global war. France had a global kingdom. Britain had a global kingdom. And so once France gets into the war, it turns into a world war, and the British resources are all split. And um, here's a quote from Sam Adams. There are instances of an almost astonishing providence in our favor. Our success has staggered our enemies and almost given faith to infidels so that when we truly say it is not our own arm that has saved us, the hand of heaven appears to have uh, been you know, led us on to be humble instruments and means of the great providential dispensation which is completing. So the um, quote from Reagan here, he says, In this country took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time in all the thousands of years of man's relation to man, the Founding Fathers established the idea that you and I had within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. That is what our Founders gave us. They gave us the right that you get to determine what you want to do with your life. And then all together we determine what's going to happen in the country. And so... Who cares, right, about their personal faults? They all have faults. Everybody has faults. But they gave us a form of government where we get to be in charge of our life. It's not this deconstruction thing that says, well, they, they had all these faults, so we're going to throw away everything they did. And the only alternative is to let power concentrate into a, a dictator again. So that's what the founders gave us. On the dec with the Declaration of Independence. They gave you the freedom to make the decision. So God is love. He loves you and he wants you to love him back. God does not need your love, but he wants it. So parents don't need their children to love them, but they want their children to love them. So God loves you and he wants you to love him back. But love, by definition, must be voluntary. Right? The moment it's forced, it evaporates. Think of it. Here's God. He exists for eternity. He knows everything. He creates everything. There's not anything that exists that He doesn't know because He's the one that brought it into existence. And so He makes, that, he makes the stars and they do what He, he or makes them to do. He makes the, the, the molecules. He makes the atoms. He makes the little puppy dogs. He makes, and everything follows its instinct. I mean, these butterflies. One time we were driving down Texas, and there's this cloud that goes from one side of the horizon to the other. And I was like, well, this cloud's going sideways. And then we drive, it goes across the highway and hits a windshield. It's all these monarch butterflies, tens of thousands. Of, it's just like this black cloud. Why do they do that? It's programmed into them. God programs. Everything does what God programmed it to do. And God's like, okay, been there, done that. I can make things that obey me. I want someone in my image that can love me. Now it gets interesting. Because love, by definition, must be freely given. So God is not interested in, submit or I chop your head off. 
If he wanted to make us obey, he could have made us obey. Instead, he puts the tree in the garden, says, Adam and Eve, don't eat from it, but it's your choice. Gives the children of Israel the law. Here's the blessings, here's the cursings. Please choose life, but it's your choice. So the God that we serve is really, really interested in your choice whether or not you want to love Him. Now, the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. There's a stranger, and you walk past them, and they're like rude to you. It's like, oh, no big deal, you know. But if it's someone you really love, it hurts because you want them to love you back so much. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love Him back. But he can't force it, because the very moment he forces it, it's no longer love. So that's what all we call reality is. He created this whole thing, this whole world environment, so that he could have beings that could have the choice whether or not to love him. And what is love? Well, it's a commitment. It's, 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 part of it is your thoughts. Right? So one time I was driving the car, my daughter was around six, and she was talking, 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 and she says, Daddy, you're not paying attention. And I go, yeah, I am, Melody, that was her name. And she's talking to her, she goes, Daddy, you're not paying attention. I go, yeah, I am. She takes her two little hands and puts them on my cheeks, and she turns my head. And she says, Daddy, pay attention. It's like, yeah, but I'm driving the car. <laughs> I thought if a six-year-old can tell if we're really paying attention, do you think God can tell? Yeah, yeah, God, I love you. Yeah, yeah, God, I love you. No. How do I show her... I let her thoughts fill my head. I focus on what she's saying. I let her thoughts, her words fill my head. So what do we do? We show God our attention. We let His Word fill our head, fill our heart. We focus on Him instead of just, yeah, God, yeah, God. No, he, and He's jealous for that. Think of it. The Creator of the universe is jealous over your thoughts. You know, before the flood, God blessed them, and they were living like 900 years. And before, right before the flood, it says... They chose to not re retain God in their thoughts. And they thought on evil continually. And it repented God that he even made man. Think of it. Imagine the Holy Spirit hovering over someone for centuries. And they had so structured their life. They don't think of him for a couple days, or a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years. A couple centuries they don't even think about God. And God's like, why did I even make these people? So God has plan A and plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much... We turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there's plan B. He withholds the blessings, and we turn to him out of desperation. His goal is to have us turn to him. He can't force us to turn, but he can, he can adjust the, the, the conditions, the variables, right? And so uh, it's like the, the kid away at college, and the dad's paying the credit card, and you never hear from him. And then you start seeing that you're paying for, you know, cigarettes and booze and online pornography. He's like, wait, I'm not going to pay the credit card anymore. And the kid's out there partying and swiping and it's not working. And he calls you, hey, yeah, Dad, the card's not working. Hey, you better believe it's not working. <laughs> I'm not going to pay for that. God's been paying our credit card bill and we've been ignoring him, right? And so the next step, he got plan A, plan B. If, our, if his blessing us doesn't turn us to him, then maybe he'll cause there to be situations that we're in a desperate situation and we turn to him. And all a nation is is a group of individuals and all the world is is a whole bunch of individuals. So if God blesses us as a country and we're not turning to him, the next plan is to, to, lot, to let it get a little bit rough so that we turn to him. But his goal is to have us turn to him. Why? Because he's existed for eternity, created everything, and he wants souls, cre cre his own creatures made in his own image that can love him. 
So today, you have the choice. You're presented with a choice. We're in a country where you have the, the freedom. And you can make the choice without fear of being killed. And I can proclaim it without fear of being killed. Other countries, it's a, it's a crime to preach the gospel. So the, the situation is, God is a just God. He has to judge every sin, but He's a loving God and that He provided the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So, if you sin against somebody, you avoid them. Have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of want to avoid the person that you've sinned against. So we've sinned against God, we, we avoid God. But then once God provided the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin, and the sin's been paid, then we're like, I don't have to avoid God anymore. It's all been paid. Right? And so now we're free to come run to God and embrace God. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. So um, I'm going to ask uh, Chuck to come on up. But let's bow our heads and, and just come before the Lord in our thoughts, in your thoughts. And think about the Lord, that the creator of the universe, of all time and all space and everything, that he's jealous over your thoughts. And he wants you to turn to him and he wants you to love him, but he can't force you to love him. Your sins cause you to avoid him, but he's provided his son to sacrifice his life to pay for your sins. So now there's no reason for you to hesitate. So let your thoughts turn to the Lord and let his love flow into your heart and you respond by love. He loved us first. Let us this morning turn our lives to Jesus. Right now here at Fellowship Church, we're giving you the opportunity to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. What he's done for us and what he's do for you, you're not promised tomorrow. There is a heaven, there is a hell. It's your decision. We just ask you to pray with us. Dear Heavenly Father, come into my life and live, Lord. Come in, love me, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you, would went, you sent your son to die on the cross. You put him in the grave. You rose him again, Lord, for us. The love you've given to us. As Bill Federer said, there's no love as great as the love of God. Please come into my life and live. And it's that simple. Believe in him. Believe he died on the cross. Believe he rose again. We just thank you. Please come into our lives and live. Here at Fellowship Church, we love Jesus. We love people. You matter and you have value. Please come to Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for the people who have prayed that prayer to come to know you today, Lord. We thank you for the speaker, Bill Federer, going, doing a great job running through the history of our independence and what, how, how great you were in the walking and the fighting and protecting of the people that fought in that war many, many years ago. We thank you for the freedom that we have here in the United States of America, this great country that we all love. We just thank you for everything you do. We ask you to bless this day. Bless each and every person here. Bless our pastor as he's away. Bless Bill as he's going to be traveling and speaking to other people, Lord. We pray that people come to know you through his speaking. We thank you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.